0: welcome to the transformations with jane podcast i'm your host jane nakata a coach for women who want to live their best life wherever they may be if you want to hear real stories about people living life their way and you want to learn about having more peace of mind and confidence then this is the podcast for you i hope you'll enjoy the show Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transformations with Jane podcast. Today I have another amazing guest. Her name is Dr. Marika Dornhege. She is half Dutch, half German and is from Germany. She is a marine ecologist and dive master. So she likes to help people to understand the sea and this world that is underwater which to me sounds absolutely terrifying, but for her, this is her passion. So that's a really interesting difference there between us. She is actually quite famous. She's been on the National Geographic's Shark Week, and she completed her PhD research in northern Japan, where she faced a unique problem that... While the world's fisheries were in crisis with rapidly dwindling fish stocks, so were the fishermen of northern Japan. So she was helping this the town of Kessinuma to rebuild their port after the devastation that they experienced through the tsunami on three eleven. And this experience definitely changed her her view about, Humans and nature, and how they need to work together. She also gives us in this episode some really nice hints for um, eating s- seafoods in a sustainable way, which I really loved. And you'll hear her her love of of nature and of the sea in this episode. So I really hope you'll enjoy listening to Marika, and you'll get another perspective on how how this disaster not only, you know, the her experience on that day, but you know, how it changed the course of her her life afterwards as well. So, I hope you enjoy the show. Hi Marika, welcome to The Transformations with Jane podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Jane. Yeah, so today we have we have Marika on the show and you are from you're from Germany or from holland
1: <laughs> or from so somewhere it, else <laughs> it's a, it's no it's, it's it's quite accurate um i'm half dutch half german and i grew up right on the border so oh, wow. near, the, near the north sea on the on the german side of the border but very very close to netherlands
0: okay so you grew up on the german side and now you're in japan coming to yes, us from tokyo yeah yes correct Very exciting to have you on the show today. Thank you for making time. So could you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a bit about where you're from, what you do, and how you came to be in Japan?
1: Certainly. So my name is Marika Dornhead, and I've been in Japan for a decade now, which seems incredibly long, saying it out loud. And I came to Japan, like I think like many other people, kind of more by by coincidence, uh, but really fell in love with the country, stayed here and um, I became a researcher. So I was working on the Japanese fishery because I'm a marine ecologist and yeah, 10 years later I'm still here. I finished my PhD in Japan, I've appeared on a number of podcasts, TV shows, other media, Uh, talking about my subject which is sharks which uh, people really seem to like recently and seems to be a good combination with japan which is one of the most biodiverse spots on earth when it comes to sharks um and yeah other than that i'm also a dive master so i teach people scuba diving i love to travel yeah i think those are probably my two main passions so i just have to say
0: that you know i one of my biggest, biggest, most irrational fears is sharks and scuba diving.
1: <laughs> well, um, I, I, under, I understand both of them because it's just so primal. First of all, we can't breathe underwater. So why would you expose yourself to that? And then sharks, as you probably think of very, very large sharks. I mean, we have like more than 500 species and most of them tiny. But you probably think of great whites and jaws. And yeah, it's a mouse full of teeth. So it can eat you. Why would you not be afraid? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Be, I mean, I'm from New Zealand, so mm-hmm. we do have sharks and scuba diving and things there. And yeah, it's just something I've always just thought, no, that is definitely <laughs> something I'm never, ever, ever going to do. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I'm very fascinated As So this is something you absolutely love, right? This is your passion and this is something that just absolutely terrifies me. So I'm sort of thinking, what what would happen if I ever got over that? You know, this is like the thing I fear most in the world. (laughs) What if I would ever get over that? And yeah, love scuba diving and be interested in sharks. Yeah, that could be an interesting, (laughs) interesting challenge. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Wow. Yeah, oh, I think you
1: just, you, you will just start with baby steps. Like you're going to be snorkeling with these tiny reef sharks somewhere and then you're going to be fine. That's, that's how you start. So yeah, for me, it's probably this the first time I was skiing on a mountain because I was born below sea level where I'm from is no mountains. And I was always, so still, I'm absolutely terrified of, um, heights, and oh, speed okay.
0: yeah And uh, but now you can ski on a mountain
1: um yeah i can like barely get down a green without like <laughs> completely messing it up
0: <laughs> i see yeah but that's a good point isn't it like if you're going to face your fears why jump into the sea with great whites in a tank mm-hmm. or and in a cage or something when you could just start out with a baby step which is snorkeling in the reef or something good point exactly <laughs> very good Yeah. So like, how did you become interested in sharks given, well, obviously you said you grew up on, on the sea in the North, on the North Sea Mm -hmm. in, in Germany. Yeah. So how did you become interested in sharks?
1: I don't really know. I know my, I remember when I was like about to finish my PhD and I was like really struggling. I was like, Oh, I'm not sure if I can do this. I was back home and then my mom, she was like, hold on. And then she got out these like, it's so cliche these um like paintings i made as a child and she was like here's the whale you painted when you were like seven and she's like here's this really scientifically accurate drawing of a blue shark you made when you were like 10 and she was like are you sure you don't want to finish this phd on on sharks so i was like always there i know my godmother gave me a book kind of like a, a coffee table book on sharks I think when I was like 14 or something so honestly I can't remember I took my scuba diving license my first one when I was 14 so it started really early I grew up sailing a lot so my, my dad was an avid sailor so there was always a connection to ocean and I don't know maybe it's a bit that I was also afraid of sharks but then I also thought they're beautiful and I just want to get really close to them So, yeah,
0: that's how it started. And look, here you are. Yeah, it's so I find it really fascinating that you ended up doing a Ph.D. here in Japan. Could you have chosen a more difficult place to come and do a Ph.D. or was it really not that
1: bad or? Yeah, no, I, I wonder that, too, because I had more than one offer and I had a really nice offer for a Ph.D. in the Bahamas, Which is kind of more what people imagine. So you're going to be diving on it on a a tropical coral reef and you're working with like the typical species we see a lot in, for example, on Shark Week, like tiger sharks and hammerheads and so on. But I also had this other offer to do a PhD in Japan and there has been very little research here that has been uh, published internationally. The Japanese, of course, do research, but it often just gets published in Japanese. So it's very challenging and Looking back, I'm not really sure if I was up for the task, but I just took it. I was like, okay, let's do something new, let's do something interesting. And I think yeah, I was I was tempted by seeing that there was this like big field where there was a lot going on, but there was not there were not a lot of people doing it. So it just felt like the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, definitely you perhaps chose the more interesting life by coming this way to Japan instead of the obvious nice choice of going to the Bahamas. I think yeah. you definitely ended up, yeah, in a in a in a much more interesting. I think you by coming to Japan, it's opened up a whole different world that potentially wouldn't have opened up to you had you gone to the Bahamas. And that leads us to our theme for this month, which is talking about memories of March eleventh in two thousand eleven. So, were you here in Japan on that day? Yes, I was. And where were you and what, what happened to you on that day?
1: I when the earthquake struck, I was in Meguro and I was teaching in a basement. So when, oh when a nurse yeah, when an earthquake strikes and you are on like a B one level of a building, it's terrifying.
0: I can imagine. So you were teaching and what happened next?
1: So as we were teaching, so we felt the earthquake came on and then so there was me one as a foreigner and a lot of japanese people and we remained calm for a while and then also i remember me and him like our eyes kind of kept darting to the japanese people like oh what are they doing because they're obviously <laughs> they're 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 experts which we are not and eventually we like we saw like the the fear in their eyes and i remember there was a group of of japanese obachans so there is japanese grandmas and they were like we have to we have to leave they were like we have to get out of here so yeah we ended up all like huddled in the the doorway which is what they say so well remove yourself from the basement but also don't run out onto the street so don't get uh struck by like falling debris so we were Mm. all standing in in the doorway and I, was, I just remember watching these huge buildings swaying in the earthquake. And I was like, I had no idea, like I, I heard it or I read it like, oh, Japanese buildings are very earthquake resistant. They're like built in different, what the structure is completely different from how we build in Europe. But I was like, wow, I had no idea a building can sway so much and still like withstand an earthquake. So yes, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was terrifying. And then the next thing that happened, so I was in the center of Tokyo is once the, the main quake, the first quake was over, everything had stopped, all the trains, all the transportation for obvious reasons because it was such a strong earthquake and I needed to get home or we all needed to get home and there was no way because there was no trains. All the taxis were taken, traffic had basically collapsed. So I joined this huge migration of people walking home that night walking home 5 10 20 kilometers because it was there was no other way
0: and so where where you were teaching in in Meguro, was that how far away from your actual apartment where you lived at the time how
1: i walked about 10 kilometers that night and because i was in my work outfit i was wearing heels and i was like my goodness oh my god um, yeah i was i was with uh, in a like group like as i said i was like in my herd of <laughs> yeah as the Japanese say like they call them salary men and office ladies so basically and I was like in a herd of like workers office workers who were uh I lived in Nakano at the time so it's a, a little bit further out of the center of Tokyo like a, a popular area where a lot of people live residential area and yeah I joined this uh, migration of like walking that way and I, I remember looking at my my phone and like hoping my um my battery will last as I needed my map to, to find my way back.
0: Yeah. Did you even know the way home? Because I know that was a huge thing for a lot of people. Yeah. They don't even, and if you if you don't live in Tokyo, if you've never been to Japan, you just cannot fathom that people have no idea how to get from their own home to their office without using, you know, by using roads and streets, they always use the un- underground or a train. And so they have no idea how to actually get there. And a lot of at that yeah. time, nobody knew this, right? Because we'd never had experienced this before where all of the transportation had shut down on such a scale. So suddenly that people were left trying to figure out which way to go to get home. Did you know how to get home?
1: Um, well, I used uh, the biggest train line in, in Tokyo or like the like kind of landmark train line is the Yamanoto, which like, is a circle around Tokyo. So I walked along the tracks. Until, yeah, until I found the station where it was like, okay, here's like where my line branches off to the left. And that's basically what I use to, to navigate to, to save battery on my phone. Because as you can imagine in the situation, I know a lot of people were kind of like camping out at cafes or mcdonald's i don't know trying to get food waiting for the situation to get better or charging their phones and then also the convenience stores they have like you know you can buy phone chargers battery packs and so on it's all sold out so i was like yeah saving battery and trying to make my way home to to nakano and yeah i was quite relieved when i finally made it i was like oh my goodness. Clever idea though mm-hmm.
0: to follow the train lines, you know, to figure out where is your train line because <laughs> it's especially if it's an above ground one, right? You can yeah. generally yeah. follow it. Um, but even if it's not, you can follow the exits for um, the metro stations a little bit, can't you? Um, if you sort of like, they're not that far away from each other. If you are using an underground train, I think that is a very clever idea. So because for me, I don't live in Tokyo, right? But when I'm in Tokyo, I'm always a little bit worried about what would happen if if that happened to me here. And I'm trying to get back to my hotel, how on earth would I get back? But yeah, we do have Google Maps and things a lot more now than we did 10 years ago which is excellent if you need to save your battery on your phone and things following a train line is an excellent idea because there are no street names and signs like you you know in the rest of the world is everything sort of named and you can follow if you had a paper map you know it's easy enough to follow but it's not really possible in japan that's for sure
1: i remember the first time i ever came to japan like probably Oh, nearly 15 years ago. I actually had a paper map because, yeah, as you said, wow. like no street names, no signs. And then, of course, like even just thinking back, like 10 years ago, we didn't use our smartphones as much yet, like already a lot, but honestly not as much as, as we do now. But, yeah, it's like a process really – I mean, once you find your train station again, you're like, oh, here it is. Oh, here's my – here's the exit I always take. You're like, oh, I made it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that must have been a relief to get home. And, you oh. know, me up here in Fukushima – on that day i was watching the tv like because i was out as well when that happened but i was in my car and i was just leaving a parking building a uh, parking area which wasn't underground it was a flat open parking area which i was very thankful for and i was able to drive home to my house and that took only a little bit longer than usual because i had to go slowly because the ground kept shaking all the time some Manholes had popped out of the road, so that, luckily not on my side of the road. Though, like when I was going home, the ob- the obstacles that were on the road were all on the other side of the road, so I didn't have to give way to the traffic. Do you know what I mean? I could keep going mm-hmm. to get home. But silly me, drove on a route that had my had my city been further north, say up in Sendai, I would have potentially driven into a tsunami. I wouldn't, you know, you know, like I was sort of heading towards the sea. That, that was the route that I took to get home. I didn't even think about, oh, there's a tsunami coming. That's That was my knowledge of tsunami at the time. So anyway, I got home. My house is inland and on a hill, so we were not affected. But I turned on the TV and saw what was happening in Tokyo. And so here's me sitting in Fukushima thinking, oh, look at all the poor people in Tokyo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> So
0: it was not long before you know the the, t- the tables were turned, but yeah, that was it was just horrific that people were so were stuck, and I can't even imagine having to walk to Chiba. You know, imagine if you live yeah. in Chiba, yeah. and a lot of people live in Chiba or in what's called a bed town. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's you know a good twenty, thirty kilometers or more away. How are you, yeah. how are you get how are they going to get home to their families, to their kids waiting at at the kindergarten or something? You know. Yeah, I think it, it definitely was not a, a great day for people who were stuck trying to get home, that's for sure. But you made it home.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: <laughs> and that was another thing I saw in Tokyo. Like, I don't know how tall your apartment building was, but uh, recently we had a large earthquake and my, my good friend Helen Iwata was saying that her apartment was shaking for 10 minutes in Tokyo mm-hmm. because it's just, you know, it's a tall building. And, you know, we were shaking for maybe a minute here in Fukushima, even though we were really close to the epicenter, it was over in a very short time. But in Tokyo, it was rocking and rolling for a long, long time. Yeah, and that's something that you have to deal with when you live in tall buildings, and and especially if you're not that close to the epicenter as well. Things seems, you know, because I'm a seismologist now as well.
1: Oh, really? <laughs>
0: no. Yeah. Well, I might as well be. <laughs> I'm an amateur seismologist. It seems that you know the, the further away you are from, every, from the epicenter, the longer it seems to shake. Yeah, things oh, that's go. That's
1: interesting. Is it kind of like the ripples on a pond get bigger the further they're like exactly? Out? Yeah, and oh. you will get
0: more ripples than at mm-hmm. the epicenter. Yeah, and because people in Tokyo were saying to me, "Are you having a second one up there now?" And I'm like, "No," and I was like, "But that's, but you're down in Tokyo, so that'd be why you're feeling it shaking again. It's it's not actually did, so, shaking here." Did,
1: mm. Yeah, the aftershocks. I mean, they came for like days after, like a whole week or so after the main quake had passed. They wouldn't stop, and it was it's at constant. one at one point it was it was constant. It was just so nerve wracking because it 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 became a as you said it it became a constant, and every day it was like shaking again, and sometimes it was a bit, it would stop quickly, or it would be very long, and it was so ongoing, and I really it for me it became so nerve wracking, and then also as that was going on slowly the news started leaking out of what had happened in fukushima which was at first covered up um that i de- at that point i decided to leave tokyo because it i just g- mentally couldn't take it anymore yeah
0: i don't i don't blame you like being mm-hmm. being here and being in what is an extremely safe building just the constant shaking was really nerve fraying yeah feeling like it was like every 15 to 20 minutes all day, all night. It was shaking, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. And then add right. on top of that, the this nuclear disaster, nobody knows what's happening, that terror on top of all of the, the stress everybody's already feeling. Yeah, it was a pretty intense time. So you decided to leave Tokyo and yeah. then where did you head to after that?
1: I, I, first of all, went to Osaka because all I knew was I wanted to get myself out of the Kanto area, so the Tokyo area. I'm from a very safety minded country, Germany, Mm -hmm. um, as probably the the stereotype fits, they're very careful people. And our uh, embassy embassy of germany like very quickly collected all the like names and contact details of all germans that live in japan and they were like please please either go get out of japan on a flight out so they were like one of the first countries to provide flights out or they were like if you not sure about leaving at least leave Well, leave Northern Japan where you're like close to um, the nuclear disaster. And they also advised us to leave Kanto. So they were like, they said like, please go to Osaka, Kobe, Kyoto, or like, and at least to those places about 500 kilometers um, southwest of Tokyo to bring yourself out of that. What we at the moment still think is a danger zone in terms of radiation. Mm. So that's the advice I followed. I see.
0: Yeah. My embassy was doing something similar mm-hmm. and um, they were in contact with me directly because I was here in Fukushima. Yeah. I think at the time it wasn't really, uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm thankful for the registration system that the New Zealand government has. And I'm sure potentially the German government also has the system. But if you are not registered with your embassy and you are a foreigner living in Japan, definitely get yourself registered because mm-hmm. then they can trace you, you know, check up on you, see if you're okay. Because in my case, yeah, they were on the phone with me all the time as much as they could trying to help me, um, give me information or anything that they knew so that I could leave Fukushima because they were so concerned about me. And I think it was really nice to have that. And it also saves them a lot of time when they're searching through hundreds and hundreds of people to make sure they can check in with you. That's my little PSA for this episode is get yourself on your embassies, um, on your country's uh, registration list if they have one. Does the German government have that now that you update it wherever you are in the world? I'm going to be here for six months or a year or whatever, or I live here now. They have the same thing?
1: They, so they have it, they have the option, but yeah, it's not mandatory. It's not no, like if no, you to. No, no, it's not mandatory. To, yeah. yeah. So you have to kind of, you have to follow it up by yourself. But so that was 10 years ago. I did it. I signed up and then, I mean, look at us now. We're like in another, a totally different kind of crisis where again, this, this could prove very, very useful that you have your own government that actually, um, I think in both our countries' cases, they do look out for us. I also think it's absolutely useful. I remember my most interesting interaction during that time with the the German government was we actually have a ministry for, um, what do you say, like radiation, Um, probably because of our history with Chernobyl, which has affected Germany a lot. And they put me in touch with the person there because I had questions about where I'm living. They were like, okay, we put you in touch. And I was speaking to this expert at this government department that like deals with uh, radiation threats. It was so interesting because th- this this person was so, he was so happy. He was like, oh, I can't believe you're in Japan. And he was like, I deal with so many inquiries these, these past few days, like every day. And it's all it's all people in Germany that are basically asking what kind of health and safety precautions they should be taking. And it, this person was just like, none, because you're <laughs> 10,000 kilometers away. And then he's like, finally, finally, I'm speaking to someone who actually needs my advice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, so I'm interested to hear, do you remember what the advice was that he had for you at that time, given what um, they knew at the time? And yeah, what- yeah.
1: So he uh, he kind of like He also said he was like, okay, we don't know everything that happened there yet. Sadly, because they're not really releasing all the information. But he also told me about things. He was like, yeah, well, please stay out of the rain <laughs> if it's raining in Tokyo. So uh, those things that he also yeah, he strongly advised. He's Like if you can get out, as, you know, as we as we don't know yet. So he's like, it's safer for you if you if you get out or if you leave, remove yourself. He's like, um, Tokyo is way too close to Fukushima. Um, get out of that zone. So he had kind of very like practical advice. And I asked him, I was like, do you do you need to like, do you need to take like iodine? Do you need to like, take like any kind of like chelating uh, medication as was given to people after Chernobyl? And he was like, yeah, we're not at that state yet. But yeah, those were his two main advice. He's like, stay indoors, stay out of the rain. If you can leave. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Because we yeah. were, we were obviously here in Fukushima watching the TV and we had no internet connection. So we couldn't really hear a lot of what was happening, you know, what the rest of the world was saying because we were not online. But my husband and I were watching the TV and they were saying, oh, if you're in the 10 kilometer radius, stay indoors and all of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And my husband was doing his Japanese read between the lines. And he, because they will never say anything that would cause a panic in Japan. And mm-hmm. if you're living in Japan, you have to know that. that when you're watching the news and you're watching what the government is saying, they will always try to maintain calm in whatever it is that's happening whether it's a nuclear disaster or a pandemic or whatever they will always try to remain uh, keep everybody calm because if you know however many million people there are in Japan, panic it's, it's just going to be a disaster that in itself is a disaster so we were reading between the lines and he said okay it's at the 10 kilometer zone we're nearly 50 kilometers away but we're saying inside we're not going outside mm-hmm. and um now we would look out the window and see you know people riding their bikes down the street and you know walking their dogs and we're like seriously <laughs> You know, everybody else was just going about their day as normal, but we were, yeah, inside and making sure we were safe. And that was the right thing to do because they realized later that, yeah, you would have been exposed had you been outside. So, yeah, that was a good choice. But, yeah, it's also a good thing to remember to read between the lines with anything, that you know, the news in this country, um, if you're looking for information in situations like this.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was so desperate for information, like expert information, that I called my own my own government um because i also i kept on turning on the tv and i was like are they going to give us some advice are they going to tell us what to do and all i found on tv was the pollen reports the pollen hay (laughs) fever is is very bad and they were like oh this is the cherry blossom forecast here's the pollen and i was like pollen i don't care i i want to know about radiation and yeah it was very obvious also for me Speaking um, to my Japanese friends, they were like saying that, like, yeah, they're not going to broadcast anything that would induce a mass panic. And I remember when I bought my Shinkansen ticket, my bullet train ticket out of Tokyo to Osaka, I was actually scared they're going to be sold out and I will have no means of leaving Tokyo. No, nothing it was It was just business as usual. No one else was thinking of frantically leaving Tokyo, or not no one else but very, very few people. Mm-hmm. So this
0: event, this three eleven event, led to something interesting happening to you in that you became part of the rebuilding of Tohoku. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, first of all, I just started out as a private initiative because I was I was here and then obviously witnessing all the well the, the lives lost and the lives the livelihoods destroyed that as as a consequence of the tsunami and the earthquake and, and it also caused fires and all these other things that I was like, okay, I, I want to do something and as i was flying home anyways because my family asked me to please come home i was like okay i'm going to do a fundraiser and it was it's quite interesting at the time so now this might sound very cliche um i'm from a very small town in northern germany and one of my other friends from my town lived in hong kong at the time and she had just come back from north korea and she had put together a photo exhibition she's a photographer on like her travels through asia so there was hong kong north korea and so on and she was like Maike, come to my exhibition, do your fundraiser there because you know it's it's all Asia. So mm. yeah. For them. Um, so we did that. It was hugely successful. So my um my small hometown was very supportive. And I collected several thousand euros. And then when I came back to Japan, we converted all that money into things that were needed in uh, the areas in Tohoku along the coast that were most hard hit. Um, So there was, of course, a lot of government shelters, but they couldn't accommodate everyone. So there was also many private run shelters that needed very simple things like, for example, safe, clean water, clothes, um, non-perishable foods and so on. So we were in contact with a few of these shelters, inquired what they needed. And then during Golden Week, which is a very uh, big holiday in Japan, we went up. And distributed uh, these goods to the shelters we had been in contact with. And I remember, so we went to Minami San Riku, which was one of the towns that was completely destroyed. And even weeks later, so this was about two months or so, like almost two months after the earthquake had struck, when you came to the town, it was still just all this rabble. Like we found there was a whole train in this like field of rubble next to the road that had been cleared by uh, the locals and the Japanese military. And then when you, so you not only, so you saw this whole train and train tracks that had been displaced, but then also like things, people's personal items, family photos, children's toys. So there's all these things you would find in the rubble. We were like, it was so clear, like all these lives had been destroyed. So just standing there and singing like, this used to be a town a whole train, like tons of trains have been displaced by this earthquake and this tsunami that was pushing into the bay. It's just, it still seems so incredible. And we finished our trip in Kasanuma. And Kasanuma is a very important port town, fishing town in northern Japan. And the town had been completely destroyed. Their port, a very large port had been completely destroyed. They had, they used to have a very beautiful um, harbour front with like, old traditional japanese houses they were all gone and it's it sounds so incredibly harsh but i remember that my professor sh- said she was like this town has been turned into a parking lot there is nothing left just just rubble but i remember we we ended there and somehow this image had really like engraved itself into my mind and then after after my like Private volunteer activities, I had the opportunity to work as a marine ecologist with uh, the people of Kesanuma on their fishery and how they were rebuilding their fishery. And I just took the opportunity, but it, did, it hadn't really dawned on me at that time what that actually meant as a as a research project because before then i was very focused on as i said before i love sharks i love the ocean i love scuba diving but then it was a whole other dimension i'm thinking of how these people that had lived with the ocean from the ocean um for centuries then now to to look at how they're gonna manage this disaster that had completely changed their lives wow so so what happened next so I went up to Casanova and then as it is in Japan, Jane, you're probably familiar. You do a million introductions. So in Japan it's all about the relationship. It's all about the introductions and building the connection. And I met all these people in this in this town. So I met I met the managing director of this fisheries cooperative, the managing director of that fishing cooperative. I met the leader of this fishing fleet. I met this old fisherman that's very uh, knowledgeable and important. I met the people that are, so in my case, I was working with sharks, process sharks as seafood. And for example, that also process or make and sell shark fins. So I was like meeting all these people. And we were talking about how, so they were like, okay, we have a foreigner who wants to do some research on our sharks and on us. And then we were just kind of just discussing how this is going to go. And then I very clearly remember, so as I said, my focus was very much on the ocean and the fish. The managing director of the fisheries Cooperative, he was a very nice man and very well traveled. He had traveled the world and he is fishing boats everywhere from Latin America to Africa. So he was like, okay, you can do your research here and you can basically do whatever you want. But he was like, I want you to put some meat on the bone. And I was like, what's the meat on the bone? And he was like, it's the human connection. It's it's the humans. Like, how do the humans connect to the ocean? And I was like, okay.
0: Mind-blowing moment there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you had to really change your perspective a little bit to to deal with the situation. So what is the situation in Kesanuma now, 10 years on?
1: They did incredibly well. So, well, Jane, you live in Tohoku and I think Tohoku's people are kind of special. So for anyone who's never been to Tohoku, it's, it's a very cold part of Japan. It's a lot more rural and traditional um, than, of course, what Tokyo is. And I think the, the land, the coastline is really rugged. It's cold. All these things have made them such strong, tough, people and they just went through it so they were like okay our port is destroyed our we lost like hundreds of lives our processing facilities are destroyed everything was gone and they're just like okay we will rebuild this and they they just did it and so I remember they were like they showed me the the plants and they were so proud. They were like, our whole port was destroyed, which is probably is the lifeline of their town. And they were like, they're like, okay, that's just that. And they were like, no, we build a better port. And they were like, we went to like all the newest like measures of safety and so on. And it was like, okay. So they really just took this as an opportunity. And then also all of these people that are in the seafood trade. So these are family businesses. This is what they've been doing for generations and generations. And now Again, all their their houses, their buildings, everything was gone and destroyed. And they were like, "Okay, we're rebuilding it." And they were like, then they basically said, like, as we were rebuilding it, we also notice. Not only every single land was gone, they were like, we have also noticed for the last few years change in the ocean. The fish stocks are changing due to overfishing. This is this is known to them. And they were like, so that's the ocean is changing. And now we were forced to change. We thought maybe we can change our fishery. So I was just amazed how open they were to, to change and like turning this into a positive.
0: Yeah, make, making an opportunity from it. And yeah. because...
1: Yeah, like uh, my instinct would
0: be to just walk away. Like it's, it's gone. <laughs> Everything's gone. They can't. Yeah, <laughs> they can't yeah, walk no, away. They yeah. they turned towards the devastation and were like, "Okay, let's let's rebuild this." And you will see this. I mean, Kesanuma is not the only place. Obviously, all along the the coast of Fukushima, this has happened, and people have rebuilt all along hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of japan but i think even after 10 years we're just getting to the end of that the rebuilding is finally finished and now it's time for yeah real real life to start almost
1: so in kasanuma so yeah now 10 years later they is it's always hard to say these things like i on one hand I want to say it, things have changed for the better for them, which of which, of course in no way justifies what they had to go through. Castanuma was so hard hit. It was not only there, they're located on a bay and the shape of the bay amplified the sheer power of that tsunami yeah. pushing in and sweeping up their town. And then the earthquake also hit like the higher laying buildings and cost so many lives. And then after that, because it's so support town, there's a lot of like industrial facilities. And then after that, they had a fire breakout in the town. They absolutely had everything happen to them. And one of the kind of like tragic monuments of the tsunami on the Tohoku coast is is a school, is a three-story school that is built close to the coast um, in the city of Kasanuma, and which of course was swept up in the, tsunami and a lot of the teachers and um, children they could escape and like save themselves on the rooftop but not all of them and the building still stands so it's this this dev- this devastated school but just if you just go near it the locals have decorated it was like you know the, the thousand paper cranes you don't even need to hear the whole story just if you go near the building you already know what would happen there so they went through so much devastation so much loss of life, livelihood, history. Um, But yeah, they didn't lose their their spirit and their culture. And then what they really did turn to the better is they were like, yeah, we're going to rebuild our port. And now we're going to have a better port and we're going to rebuild our fishery. And now we have an incentive to, Adjust to what has changed in our world, in our environment, and for them it was this slower change that has been creeping up on them. And I think all of us uh, have heard how fish stocks dropped in the ocean, and there is there is climate change, there is ocean acidification, and then there's of course humans, like our increasing population, putting so much pressure on fishing popular uh, fish uh, populations and fish stocks. And then now they had this slow change has been creeping up on them, where the fishery has never been as profitable again as how it used to be back for example in the 70s or 80s uh, but now they had this like they were like okay now we have the final incentive to change something and they did and they really explored what they can do they were like okay how can we how can we change how can we make this better both for, for all of us like for us as a fishing community and as humans and for our consumers and for the ocean itself. And for them, it was like, since then, they have instated or installed so many um, fishing policies that were, for example, I work very closely on sharks. Sharks, we say, interact with the fishery. So it means they often get caught as bycatch. It's not that fishermen necessarily want to catch sharks. They're actually not most palatable fish to eat. They often just end up bycatch. And they were like, so they made all these new rules. They're like, okay, let's not fish these sharks anymore. Like if we have them on our hook, we're going to throw them back. So they really reduced the sharks that they were lending. Then they were looking at, at other things that I think many of us also know we don't need to be fisheries expert to know tuna stocks are declining especially in the Pacific. And for them, they're like, okay, let's change our target. Let's not make our target tuna anymore. Let's look at other fish. And then the most important thing is they just realized the reality of that there's less fish in the ocean. So we're going to have less vessels. We're going to have less fishermen going out, but we still need to sustain ourselves. So what do we do? And that's really where like the sustainability aspect comes in. And eco-labels or green labels for fisheries, because it's basically saying that we say like, hey, we honor that this fish is rare and valuable. And that means with an eco-label, we're going to put a higher price on it. And this is really something where where it's not only the fishermen that say like, okay, we're going to take everything. It's also the consumer that says like, hey, I'm willing to pay more. Because this fisherman or this fishing community is like pricing the fish at what it's worth, and it's worth a lot more now because it's rare. And then if we if we pay them more, if we give them more money for honoring their more sustainable fishing methods and honoring that they're catching less, um, what we're doing is we really yeah honoring the ocean and saying like this is a finite resource. And that has really this has really helped Kasuuma and like rebuilding, rebuilding their town and like refocusing the fishery and saying like, hey, we're going to be more selective instead of just mass and really looking at, yeah, new new marketing ways or, so yeah, new ma- ways of marketing their, their fish, their livelihood to the consumer and saying like, hey, we, we want to be green because this tsunami has really sh- shown us this is like, is this is the turning
0: point. For yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing that came out of something really horrific. And mm-hmm. and hopefully this will lead to the longevity of a community that perhaps wasn't going to last so long had this not happened, yeah. So sustainable seafood is your thing. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about this? I mean, I know in the rest of the world it is kind of a given. It's kind <laughs> of not a given, but it's it's a lot more prominent than I think it is here in Japan. How can we find it? How can we make good choices about sustainable seafood?
1: is such a good question. And as I already mentioned, yeah, the first thing is always there is eco labels. And I think many of us are familiar with them. Like, I guess, Jane, for example, for you, if you're back home in New Zealand, you go to a supermarket and you can find like the blue labels, for example, the MSC Marine Stewardship Council labels on certain fish. And then that's such a good guideline for consumers to like, if I want to make a good choice for the ocean while maybe still enjoying seafood, then you're like, okay, I don't know much. So I'm going to trust this label. And most of these labels you can trust is is a really good place to start. Japanese government has in the meantime has also made their own label. It's it's called MEL, M-E-L. So we can also follow that. The conditions stipulated are a little bit different. Um, so they're more limited than, for example, MSC is stricter, but that's a really good start. But uh, sometimes we don't have labels. So, or often we don't have labels. So, what do we, what do we orientate ourselves with? And a really good way, if I don't know much, like uh, if I'm not a marine biologist and I don't know the whole marine ecosystem, is to pay attention to the, what we call the three S. And the three S are small, silver, seasonal. Mm-hmm. so a small fish is better to eat than a large fish because well as you can imagine large fish take a very long time to become big and then if we take this out of the the ecosystem that's very hard to replace but the smaller fish like zinc for example um sardines something more in that like size class is e- so there's more of them so it's a more sustainable uh species of fish to consume so right. smaller. Fish. Mm-hmm. Silver is good. It's just how it came out. A lot of the silver fish, like, again, sardines, anchovy, mackerel, um, often swim in. So so they're like the small and silver ones. They're large. They reproduce quicker. They occur in large groups. We have already, by now, figured out how we can um, harvest them more sustainably. It's another good one. And then seasonal. This is a bit harder. So if I'm not from the country where I'm consuming the fish, or if I'm not familiar with, with the kind of the seasons of the ocean, I don't always know what is in season. But for example, in uh, in Japan, uh, when Pacific sardine is in season, Pacific Souris is the sanma, the kind of like needle-looking fish. That's a good. It's a good time to just consume that fish because it means, okay, they're fishing it now this season. And then when it's out of season, that fish is going to get a break again. They're not targeting it. They're not fishing it. Or for example, also a lot of squid fisheries. So we have, as we learn more about the ocean and how um, squid fish live in the ocean, we have figured out like, Oh, this is the life cycle of the squid. Um, This is the time when they lay eggs. Um, This is the time when they mate. And this is the time when we shouldn't be harvesting them. But then they have, for example, figured out this is a good time to harvest it and the Japanese flying squid at a time that we don't impact their like mating or egg laying. And then if we follow these seasonal things, we can also really give the population a break. So that's probably one of the best advice.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. I I mean in Japan there's a lot of sort of seasonal fish and things isn't it so i hope yeah. that those seasonal fishes match up with <laughs> the the fish's life cycle you know in a, oh. in a good way yeah.
1: yeah for the most part they do as i just said like we are we are learning more and more about the fish and we're starting to apply it more and more it's not perfect yet and i think also the we have to try to not, like, we can't be perfect yet. So let's not try to be perfect. Let's just do the, the best we can as a consumer. And of course, also as a, as a country as a whole, or like in the, in the fishing industry, even beyond that, the seasonality of, for example, the squid or the Pacific saury, that needly looking fish that we often see, that's really ancient knowledge. And the Japanese, even though they do have a bad reputation for the fishery, the local fisheries, they're really not that bad. They have a lot of old sustainable concepts like they call it sato umi and sato means home and umi means ocean so they have a lot of awareness that their home and their livelihood is very connected to the sea and also when i was up in kasanuma the, the old very old old fishermen they talked to me about um, morikawa umi so Mori Kava Umi means Mori is the forest, kava is the river, and umi is the sea. And they were like, oh, it all connects and and the babies and and then so they were so the babies of the fish. And they were telling me this. And yet they have not run a scientific study, but they had observational intrinsic knowledge of knowing that somehow the forest and the sea are connected because, yes, the baby fish migrate and the forest brings nutrition into the coastal areas and then some of the fish do migrate into the river at different life stages. And they do have this knowledge and they pay attention to it.
0: Wow, that's very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for that information because I I like sustainable seafood and I like to make – you know, guilt free choices in my mm-hmm. food consumption if possible. But it is really difficult in Japan to to find those things sometimes because it's not clearly marked for us like it is in other countries always. So yeah, that's good to have that information as well that we can, yeah, find ways to have more sort of yeah, sustainable choices in our and now eating in thing. Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So if
1: you remember the three S, so like go for like a more silver fish, the smaller one. And if it says it's in season, like if in doubt, go with that. If you're like in a, a more local town, you're probably not gonna be wrong. And then also you can eat invertebrates. It's like what I what I go for. There's um shellfish clams, ebi, the different kinds of shrimp, especially amaebi is a quite sustainable choice. Amaebi is the mm. sweet shrimp. So we can also um, go for those when we add at a sushi restaurant. And then if you want to avoid something, if you look at avoiding something really big, probably most of us already know, it's like, well, probably don't have the whale, don't have the eel. Eel is also one of the most critically endangered fish. Um, avoid tuna because you know, is the stocks are declining a lot and tuna still has problems. There's a lot of bycatch and please avoid shark. Uh, we've lost about 90% of all our shark stocks. And then just look for the alternatives. If you want to eat tuna, maybe have katsu or have a bonito instead. And um, Shark and whale, maybe you can do with, maybe you can do without them. If you're looking for eel, if you're looking for a fattier, so eel is very fatty, a fattier fish, maybe go for mackerel.
0: There you go. Yeah. Awesome, thank you so much. So, what? Where can guests? Uh, not guests, sorry. Where can <laughs> listeners find out more about Rika?
1: For me, it's probably the the best thing I've done in, in the last year, which is obviously was a hard year, I think, for most of us. Um, somehow, I really quickly managed to film um, a Shark Week episode um, before the pandemic really uh, struck and uh, locked us all down in Japan. So I have an, an episode on Discovery Channel, which is called Alien Sharks 5. Uh, I went out with Japanese fishermen and learned through them about their deep sea fishery and deep sea sharks. And for those who can't find that, I'm also on, on Instagram. So on my Instagram, there is um, there's a lot of stuff about sharks sea life and japan japan itself so that's also another source if you like the ocean if you want to have some some beautiful footage of yeah fish not only sharks ocean and japan so my um my Instagram handle. I'm Jane. I'm sure you're going to put it in because my name is so hard. It's so hard to pronounce and so hard to uh, write. It's uh, Marika and the Sharks, and then all the words are separated by underscore. So yeah, Jane, please put the handle. I in will. So, yeah, um, people can
0: find it. Yeah, so definitely go and follow Marika on Instagram, and yeah, just have a look at all her cool photos on there. If you are able to watch Discovery Channel, then you can check out that episode as well, where she goes out with and looks at alien sharks (laughs) very very cool well thank you so much for coming on the show today Marika. it was really amazing to hear your experience of 311 and how you were able to contribute to the rebuilding of kesenuma and yeah that really really useful information about how we can all eat a little bit more sustainable fish stocks instead of yeah make good choices with our um eating fish and seafood and yeah, I look forward to seeing more of what you get up to in the future.
1: Thank you so much, Jane, for this opportunity because I really love kind of just having this this platform where like me as a marine ecologist is always like where people feel like, oh, this is so far out it's so like so removed from the kind of the quote unquote human world right um, For me, that was really like showing like no, it's not it's like we're we're all connected and it's all connected and then these especially these big events, really show us that. So thanks a lot. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.
0: So that was the interview with Maraika. If you are a subscriber to National Geographic, I hope you'll go and watch that episode of the Alien Sharks, I think it's called, and see her in action out on the fishing boats. <laughs> and yeah, definitely follow her on instagram she her i've got her instagram handle and other links where you can find her in the show notes so i really liked those three s's of the sustainable way to consume seafood if that's what you want to do those the small silver and seasonal because i think in japan it's quite easy to manage that seasonal seafood is definitely a thing here and so you can make sure that you're having the best fish for the season because it's potentially going to taste really good as well. And to be help, to be uh, helping maintain fish stocks as well so that we can enjoy seafood in the future as well. So thank you so much for listening today. I have more wonderful guests lined up for you. It's very, very exciting. so many cool people coming on the show. And thank you so much to all the new listeners who are listening out there. I really appreciate that. So have a wonderful day and I will see you again next week. Bye-bye.